other than humans and angels, other than humans and angels, I think God's favorite thing that of all that he's created is light. And just speculation, I don't know this for sure, but I think his favorite creation is light. And I think this for a variety of reasons. Uh, first and foremost, it was the first thing he created, right? Let there be light. Uh, additionally, we as human beings know remarkably little about light. It's just so complex, so amazing. Uh, but the little that we do know is quite astonishing. As a matter of fact, I actually thought this would be a fun introduction. I'm going to Google. I'm going to try to find some amazing facts about light and give them to you. And it was just over my head. I got nothing. It was too deep for me. It was too hard. Light is too complicated. But there are some basic things I know about light that make it so remarkable. As far as we know, it's the fastest thing in all creation. Nothing else can travel at the speed of light but light itself. It's unbelievably, remarkably fast. Uh, light has always puzzled physicists as it's both a particle and a wave, which should be a contradiction. It's, it's both square and circular, in other words. Uh, somehow it's not a contradiction. It just, it just is these two things at the same time. It's pretty remarkable. Uh, and what, one of my favorite things about light is there's this great irony where you can't see light, but by it you see everything else. Like the only way we can see light is if we distort it. If you put colored in fr color in front of it, then suddenly the room turns red. But light is something we consider invisible. You don't, you don't see the light, but you see everything else, and that's how you know there's light in the room. You don't see light, but by light you see everything else. Light is amazing. But if I had to boil down the main reason that I think God loves light so much is because it is remarkable how often in Scripture God uses light as a metaphor about Him or other good divine graces. Let me just give you one really explicit example. You don't have to turn there. I've got it on the screen for you. Read 1 John 1, 5 with me. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. God is just straight up called light. It's pretty amazing. But again, I could make, I don't have these on the screen, but I have examples that we could go all day long with. Let me just rattle off a few. The Bible describes God as dwelling in an unapproachable light. The Bible calls Jesus the light of the world. And then by extension, it ends up calling the church, the body of Christ, the light of the world. The Bible refers to when you're saved, the Bible talks about how you can think of that as the light of Christ shining in your heart. Salvation is light. The book of Revelation refers to churches, individual local churches like ours, as lamp stands. We are little lamps. We are little lights all throughout a dark city. And one of the more important examples, Jesus in his transfiguration, when the glory of the Lord shone on him, what the text emphasizes more than anything is that he shined with a bright light. The glory of God is a bright light. And again, I could list a lot of other examples all throughout the Bible Light is used as a metaphor for divine things. And I say all this because today we get to study one of those metaphors. Our text today is one of the more famous texts that speak about the Christian relationship metaphorically to light. We are going to learn in our sermon today from the Apostle Paul how we can act like light in the darkness of our world. Would you turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 verses 7 through 14 please? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then get everyone popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians chapter 5. I would invite, when you've gotten there, would you please stand so that we can show reverence to the reading of God's Word? Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. Thus saith the Lord. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This bars the reading of God's word. Would you please be seated? Admittedly, I probably didn't break last week's sermon at a great place. Verse 7 and maybe verse 8 probably belonged with last week's text. But it's okay. My mistake has been redeemed because verses 7 and 8 really work as a really perfect transition. Transitioning from the thought of last week to a new related thought this week. And let me explain how I think verses 7 and 8 are just such a good transition in Paul's flow of thought. Verse 7 tells us to avoid partnership with evil, meaning that we not only should not do evil things, but that we should not support or encourage or give counsel to evildoers and their evil. We should be totally uh, distinct and separated from evil. We cannot partner with it. And that's kind of what we talked about last week. We talked about how we should not partake in these kinds of sins. And specifically, we talked about why we should not partake in them. And that's what verse 8 does, right? So we do not become partners. Why? Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You hear the past tense of that? You were darkness, past tense, but now you are light in the Lord, present tense. So what we talked about last week was how because of the gospel, because Christ has saved us and made us new, we should no longer live as if we're not new. And that's basically what verses 7 and 8 are saying. It's just repeating what we learned last week. But something new has been introduced for us, and that is this, this metaphor of light and darkness. Paul discusses our new identity in this metaphoric language, and he describes the old man who we used to be before Christ saved us as darkness. And don't miss the harshness of this. Right? He doesn't say that we were filled with darkness. We were darkness itself. That's how low Paul thinks of fallen human nature, right? It's so evil and so corrupt, it's been completely tainted. It doesn't have darkness, it is darkness. The human nature before the regeneration of the Spirit, it's so corrupted in will, desire, thoughts, and passions that Paul identifies it with darkness. But on the flip side, once we are in the Lord, 
once we have union with Christ, right, he emphasized that in the Lord, you don't just become light by yourself. You have to become part of the light who is Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. And when you are in him, the light of Christ now shines in you and then shines out. So you become light in the light of Christ. The darkness that was in you, the darkness that was you, is driven away by the light of Christ. So we are no longer ignorant, but enlightened. We are no longer sinful, but regenerated. We are no longer totally evil, but we are now able to walk in good works. And so what I want us to see today is I want us to explore this metaphor of light. We are supposed to be light. We are supposed to, as Paul says in verse 9, walk as children of light. This world is darkness and we are to be light. But how do we do that? This is a metaphor, right? We're not actually going to shine. What does it mean to be light in the world? How can we do this? And Paul is going to give us three reasons, three ways that we are lights to the world, right? So that's what we're doing today. Three ways to let your light shine. The first of our three ways is through ethical living. I try to make these all ease so that they'd be easier to remember. Ethical living. Living good lives. Ethical living. Look at verse 8 with me. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So Paul tells us that we have to walk as children of light. And we've learned throughout Ephesians already what walking is. It's a metaphor for your way of life. How you live your entire life is, is metaphorically described as walking. How do you walk? How do you live? And we are supposed to live as light. We must not live as if we are dark. We must live as we are light. But what does that look like? And he tells us in verse 9. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Right? So one of the first ways to be light, Paul tells us. By the way, maybe you're confused. What does that look like? Well, the fruit of light, here's what it looks like. Goodness, righteousness, truth. You pursue those things, you're being a light in the world. I love how Paul here describes, he's, he, Paul loves to blend metaphors. He does it all the time. Here's another blending of the metaphor. So light is metaphorically described as having children, right? Light bears fruit. And what is the fruit? What are the children of light? Good works. And so this really supports our Protestant notion that good works come from the light of Christ. Our good works are not what give us the light of Christ, right? You are not saved by your good works because you need to be saved before you even have the ability to produce true good works. In other words, Paul has not flipped this. Becoming light is not the fruit of pursuing righteousness, goodness, and truth. Rather, already being light produces the fruit of good works. You see the important order here. So we do not walk in good works so that God will love us, so that God will save us. It's the exact opposite. You need to be saved before you're able to be light. Because before you're saved, you're darkness. Darkness doesn't just start shining brightly and then God says, okay, I'll call that light. God has to shine in the dark. You have to be transformed. And then the fruit of that transformation is good works. So the first way to be a light in the world is to live ethically. Now, what exactly are the differences between these three virtues Paul's given us? One is easy, right? Truth. We know what truth is. What's the difference between righteousness and goodness? Right? What's the difference between being good in a situation and being righteous in another situation? 
Uh, I think in a lot of situations, they will be the same thing. And there's probably no exact scientific way to, to precisely measure the difference. But Paul obviously thinks they're different. Uh, some people have, uh, have suggested that um, goodness is how we treat neighbor and righteousness is how we treat God. Uh, some people have suggested that righteousness is about obeying the law of God, where goodness is just, just a description for helping the people around us, so kind of similar. I, I think both of those places are decent places to land. But here's the good news in all of this. If, if you're really struggling, like, oh, man, I have to take a, uh, an ethics course at, and learn the difference between goodness and righteousness. No, you don't have to do that. Because Paul clarifies it for us even further. You want to be a light. You want to live ethically. What does that look like? Verse 10. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's human righteousness. Please the Lord. Whatever would please God in this situation, do that. And whenever you're pleasing the Lord, you're inevitably going to be walking in truth, goodness, and righteousness. Whatever God's law says to do is what the children of light are to seek. And the reason Paul phrased it like this, right, try to discern what is pleasing the Lord, why do we say that? Is because I think Paul is recognizing that the law of God has to be applied in our lives, right? Sometimes ethics are not as black and white as we want them to be. Sometimes the way we apply God's law looks a little different in every situation, which is why sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it's hard to know what would please the Lord in this situation, right? There are times where it's very obvious, easy, black and white, very obvious, yeah, I want to do this. The Bible says don't. Don't do it. Very clear. But in a lot of situations, it's, it's hard for us to know. And so part of how we grow and walk in light is we learn to discern through study of the word, through our interactions and love with one another. We get more mature. We, as the book of Hebrews says, we practice our discernment and we train it through constant practice. And we get better and better and better at being able to discern what does God's law look like in my situation. And when we do that... We are walking in goodness and truth and righteousness. And when we do that, we are lights to the world. That is when our light shines. Jesus, by the way, says this very clearly. I have this for you. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So how does Jesus define letting your light shine in that passage? Good works. Let your light shine. What does that mean? Do good works. And when people see your goodness, they will glorify the God who gave you that goodness. One, the first way that Paul teaches us to be lights in a dark world is through ethical living. Pursue good works. Let your light shine. But that is only the first of three ways for us to shine our light in the world. The second way that Paul tells us is by exposing sin. Exposing sin. Way number one, ethical living. Way number two, exposing sin. Look at verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is really important. Paul does not call us to merely a passive relationship with sin, but an active one as well. Right? There's a passive relationship where we merely avoid it. I'm not going to do sin. I'm not going to be around it. We abstain from sin, but that's not enough. 
A passive response to sin is not shining light. There's an active response. We not only abstain from it, but then we actively go after it. We expose it. We take what's in the dark and we bring it into the light. And I really like the ESV using the word expose. Your, a lot of your Bibles probably use the word expose, but some of them might use the word reprove. And it's very similar. The, the, the Greek word here does mean reprove. It essentially means to reprove or to argue with or to demonstrate the fault of something. But given the context of light and darkness, exposure is the right word because the metaphor is this idea that there is this darkness and if you're going to be a light in the world, what does light do? It, it shines on the dark and it shows you what's there. Why are dark alleys so scary? Why is a dark cave so scary? Because you don't know what's in there. So the purpose of light is to say, I do know what's in there, right? And we live in a world where people, they don't realize how dangerous and destructive and evil their sin is. They're ignorant, they're in the dark, and it's our job to say, I know what's in there, and it's not good. We shine light on sin. We have to expose it for what it is. This is ironic, uh, considering that evangelicalism has spent the better part of the last century trying to completely cut this role out of the Christian mission. Many Christians today actually think that exposing the sins of the people around us is judgmental or pharisaical. That's their favorite one, right? If you dare expose the sin around you, you're a Pharisee. Now, the Bible, to their credit, certainly is critical of hypercritical judgments, or a better way of saying this, hypocritical judgment. Uh, exposing other people's sin when we are making no good faith effort to walk in righteousness is something God hates and you shouldn't do that. That's why the first one is the most important one. You need to walk as children of light before you start pointing out everybody else's problems. So certainly hypocritical exposure the Bible hates. If, if we're going to expect other people to walk in the light, we need to walk in the light, right? But when we are children of light and when we are making that good faith effort to walk in the light, then it is absolutely our job to be quote-unquote judgmental. Maybe not as assume all of the connotations of that word, but the basic duty to tell the world this is sin. God's wrath abides upon this. You shouldn't do this. That's our job. That's what God put us in the world. That's what light does. It exposes the dark. It exposes the dark. And so what that means is that it is part of our duty to do this, and it's one of the ways that we actually shine light. It's, in other words, it's actually a blessing. Light is good. In, in Paul's analogy, darkness is bad, light is good. If exposure is light, then light is good. We are blessing our neighbors by exposing their sin. We are blessing the world by exposing sin. And that's where people get confused. How is that possible? Because it, if you've ever been on the other end of that, it doesn't feel like a blessing. Even as Christians, we have to expose each other's sin sometimes. You know, I've been in this church long enough. People have had to come up to me and say, I think you did something wrong here. It doesn't feel good. I don't like that conversation. How is it a blessing to have my sin exposed? How are we being kind to the world by exposing their sin? Doesn't that just sound so like harsh and aggressive? Expose their sin, church. Well, I actually think that that's what verse 12 is all about. I think verse 12 gives us a little hint as to why this is actually a blessing. What does verse 12 say? 
The things that we expose, the things that our job is to abstain from and expose, Paul says this about them, for it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. In other words, here's what Paul is saying. The neighbors that don't know Christ that you know, that you love, that you care about, are living in an ignorant way where they have no idea just how destructive and dangerous their lifestyle is. They have no idea that the things they're doing are so bad, it would embarrass me to even talk about it. In other words, I think what Paul is hinting at here, obviously it's, it's a little implicit, not so explicit. But I think he's hinting at this. It is not an act of love to turn the other way and let our neighbors self-destruct and drown in these evil, wicked things. Just, I'm saved, so I'm just going to do my thing and the world be damned. Those, those evil things, and they don't even know how evil they are, just let them do it. I'm just going to do my thing. Turning the, uh, the other way and ignoring the de- evil and destruction of our neighbors, that is not an act of love to them. You would never do that to your children. Oh, my son's about to put his hand on the stove. I'm just going to do my thing. It is an act of love to bring them into the light. What you're doing is terrible, and God will judge it. I can't help but think, you may have heard this before, but there's a famous quote from an old, a man titled the Prince of Preachers. He's kind of considered the greatest preacher in Baptist history. I don't know if that's true. But that's the reputation he has. But I love this quote. And he says this, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. You see, exposing sin is love. We shine our light when we expose sin. Now, one important caveat to make is that this is a a general call to the church, right? We're not dealing with specifics right now. Paul's not dealing with specifics. He's dealing in generalities. What this means is that as I'm speaking about your general duty as a Christian, so I'm not telling you how to behave in every single given situation. In other words, I'm not saying that, okay, so now your job is tomorrow's Monday, you're going to go into your place of work, and someone's going to do something wrong, and you need to stop what you're doing and call the fire of hell upon them. I'm not saying that our job is not every single time there's any sin remotely within our vicinity, we need need to turn into Charles Spurgeon and, and preach at them. This does take some individual discernment on when to speak and when not and what words to use. And I think that's, to some degree, again, what we read earlier in uh, verse 10 about trying to discern the will of the Lord. Even as we expose sin, there's, there's some kind of subjective cases where I, I don't know exactly when and how to do that in this particular situation. One, if, if you're confused, one of the commentaries I read, I think he put it really succinctly. He said this, If our motivation is to please the Lord, then living as children of light will involve exercising a responsible freedom and developing an intuitive sense about how to act in any given situation. 
Again, okay, so the exposure of sin is the general call of the church. It's the general call of the Christian duty. So please, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. (laughs) My pastor said I got to come in guns a-blazing to work tomorrow. Uh, I'm not saying that. But I am just saying that generally speaking, God did not put the church on earth to ignore and turn our eyes away from sin. He put the church on earth to be a light to the darkness, to shine and to expose the severity and the danger of sins. But sometimes that takes discernment. It was Jesus himself, I remind you, who before he sent his disciples out to go be missionaries and church planners, told them to be innocent as doves, but as wise as serpents. As far as I know, that's the only time the serpent is ever used in a positive sense in Scripture. Right? And and what does a serpent represent in Scripture? It represents craftiness, sometimes even deceit. So Jesus is saying, like, you need to go out and preach the gospel, but there's going to be, you need to do that with tact. You need to do that with strategy. You need to be wise about it. You're not just going out to be an innocent dove. You're going to be a crafty serpent. Jesus himself knows that our evangelism, the exposure of sin, it's going to look a little different in every given situation. So again, I'm talking about our general purpose. And the general purpose of the church is something we can't shy away or hide from, and that is to expose sin. It is to reprove it, to bring it into the light, and show that it is evil. And and, and if you're struggling to do it, let me just throw some examples in front of you. Consider Nathan the prophet, who gloriously and, and powerfully exposed and rebuked David when King David slept with Bathsheba and then murdered Uriah to cover it up. Nathan did not turn the other way. He went after David. Consider the example of John the Baptist. It was so important for him to tell a political leader, not even a religious person, not even a church person, but to tell a secular political leader that the sexual relationship he was having with a family member was wicked. And what did that end up doing for John the Baptist? How did that turn out? got his head cut off. Can you imagine, potentially, hypothetically, all of the naysayers in John the Baptist's life? John, you don't need to get so involved in politics. You've got got a bright future ahead of you. Whenever you preach, all of Jerusalem comes to listen. You You don't need to throw your potential and your ministry away to go talk to some pagan king about his sex life. We know that the pagan kings are evil. Just, 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 Just focus on ministry. And Paul says, this is my job. It is my job to tell the king, you cannot have her. He was willing to die to expose that sin. But perhaps the best example of all, just consider Jesus. Consider your Lord. Read the Gospels and see that Jesus made a regular habit of rebuking the gross sins of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the scribes. But not just those guys. We generally hold them up as the bad guys. Even Jesus' own disciples Jesus, in his three-year ministry with them, regularly had to rebuke them and correct them for all the things that they were doing wrong. Jesus himself was not a man afraid to say, that is sin, don't do that, repent, come into the light. We shine our light when we expose sin. But this is a convenient transition to our third and final one. You could almost think of them as two parts of the same thing. And that is that the exposure of sin sometimes works. Here's the good news. Sometimes it works. And that is why our third point is that when we shine light, we do so by evangelizing sinners. 
We shine our light by ethical living, exposing sin, and evangelizing sinners. Let's begin. Look at verse 13 with me. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. And then let's look at the first part of 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. These two verses uh, have puzzled translators and commentators in its precise meaning. It's hard to translate and it's even harder to interpret. But it seems that there is a kind of general agreement among all of the scholarship that what Paul is essentially saying here is that sometimes, not every time, but sometimes when we expose sin, it becomes light. Once you shine on the darkness, the darkness absorbs the light and in itself becomes light. So in other words, Paul is telling us that sometimes the exposure of sin works. It actually has the effect, the ability to transform people into light. You shine light on darkness, the darkness becomes light. You can turn darkness into light. You illuminate it and transform it. One of my favorite theologians of all time, uh, it was a man named William Perkins. William Perkins is considered one of the greatest minds of the entire Reformation. Now, we don't know this for sure because there's not a whole lot of documentation on this, but the best sources we have that speak of his conversion tell us that he was converted because before he came to Christ, he was an occultist and he was a heavy drinker. He lived at the tavern. And one day, he came out of the tavern and he heard a mother on the sidewalk rebuking her child or telling her, or forgive me, telling her child about the immorality of his life warning her child about the dangers of his lifestyle. And that brought a deep sense of shame and conviction upon him, which eventually led him to church and led him to the Lord. Just some homemaker, some what our society calls a stay-at-home mom, raising her children faithfully, reaped shame and conviction upon a sinner, so much so that it brought him into the light and turned him into one of the greatest theologians in the Reformed tradition. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works. And so what happens when it works? What happens when people feel the weight of their sin? They, they, they see their, their ignorance is removed and they see that this is wicked. That's why we have to be prepared. Our job is not just to expose sin and walk away, but to do what Paul does in verse 14. Notice what Paul does in verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says what? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When it works, we need to prepare to evangelize them, to call them to Christ when they are feeling the weight and guilt of their sin, we need to be prepared to point them to the place where their sins are forgiven. You don't have to live with shame. You don't have to live with guilt. You don't have to live with embarrassment because Christ can shine His light on you and forgive you of your sins and resurrect your dead, dark spirit. Now, what's interesting is the latter half of 14, like the first part, is also a difficult thing for translators to understand because Paul is obviously quoting from something here, right? He says, therefore, it says. That's why your Bible probably puts this in quotations. Um, but the, the reason this is confuses people is because what he quotes, we can't find anywhere in Scripture. Like, what is he quoting from? We don't know. Uh, some have speculated that he's perhaps quoting from a, a hymn that their church wrote, a song that their church sang, or maybe some kind of baptismal creed that people had to 
uh, confess, or maybe it was spoken over them before baptism. Now, I, uh, there's a debate about this. We don't know for sure, but I hold the majority opinion that I actually think he is quoting scripture here. But I think what he's doing is something we've actually already seen him do in chapter 4, which is his authority as an apostle gives him the ability to take the Old Testament but add his own sort of interpretive spin to it. Because what did we learn in Ephesians? The job of the apostles was to teach us the proper understanding of the Old Testament. And I think he's doing that by tinkling with the quotation a little bit. So here's what I think he's quoting from. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That's what I think he's quoting from. It's obviously not word for word, but I think he's taken this Old Testament call to experience the light of Yahweh, experience the light of the Word, and he's applied it to our local situations, and he's shown us that we need to follow in the footsteps of the prophets in the Old Testament. And when people feel the weight of their sin, when they recognize that I am dead in my sins, call them to life. Call them to the light. Call them to the resurrection of the Lord who is Christ. The light of Christ shines upon the repentant and fills those who awake from their slumber, who rise from the dead. We call people to life. And when we do that, we call that evangelism. In other words, we need to be ready to preach the gospel. We don't just leave people in their sins. We give them the hope. We give them the light of the gospel. When we evangelize sinners, we are shining bright. By the way, this is all in fulfillment of what Jesus promised us. I have on the screen for you, John 5, 25. This is just a fulfillment of Jesus' promises. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. The light of Christ will shine and the dead will rise. Church, that hour is upon us. Jesus told us that hour is already here. The dead need to rise. The dark need to come to the light. And what a privilege it is that the Lord chooses to use our words, our exhortations to shine his light. The light of Christ shines through our light. He uses us to illuminate the dark. Before we summarize, let me just tell you one more story. My wife does tutoring with a young girl. She did some private tutoring, the reading, and um, they were doing vocab words. And one of the words was Gentile. So that just opened up the door for them to have a little conversation about the Bible and about the gospel and about how the gospel has gone not just to the Jews, but also the Gentiles. So my wife got to have a little gospel conversation with this young woman. And when I tried to praise her for that, you know what she told me? Well, her family's already Christian. They go to church every week and you know, they're raising her right. You know, like I'm not telling her anything she hasn't heard already. And I had to sort of lovingly correct that. Because experience tells us that you can hear the gospel many, many times before it finally clicks. I would be willing to bet in our country, most people do not get converted the first time they hear the gospel. Right? We, our duty, we can't convert anybody. All we can do is shine light. But it's the light of Christ through the Spirit that has to work in them for it to actually be effectual. And so here's the good news in that. It doesn't matter if this young girl has heard the gospel a hundred times at this point. It might just be the one time Layla said it that the Lord used it to raise this girl from the dead. You have no idea of the fruit that might be born from the seeds that you plant. 
You might preach the gospel to your neighbor and they get mad at you and they hate you and they never talk to you again. And then you die and you go to heaven and you hear the story about how 10 years later they remembered that. When they were in the worst part of their life, they remembered the light that you shone, the light that you gave them, and it will save them. We have no idea when God will choose to work efficaciously through our words. So we have this amazing privilege to just let our light shine and know and believe that God might use my words to save someone forever. It's my words, it's my proclamation that he's using as a tool to save people. Isn't that a privilege? If God wanted to, he could just save everyone the way he saved Paul. Right? How did he save Paul? He just, he just appeared to Paul. <laughs> he just showed up and said, Paul, believe in me. Paul got baptized in the state. But that's not how God typically works. God typically works through the little light that each one of us shines to the darkness of our neighbors. He wants to use your light your good works, your exposure of sin, your faithful gospel proclamations. He wants to use you to save the world. What a privilege that is. So in this, in conclusion, hear this exhortation from Scripture. Go be lights in the world. Live your lives in a way that pleases the Lord. Rebuke and expose sin and preach the gospel to, the neighbor, to your neighbor. Why? Because you are the light of the world. So shine on. 